1: but it's something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And today we talk with Catherine Tumber, um, author of Small, Gritty, and Green, The Promises of America's Smaller Industrial Cities in a Low-Carbon World. And this is part two of my interview with Catherine Tumber. And this is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. today is part two of my uh, talk with Catherine Tumber. And uh, Catherine is um, author of Small, Gritty and Green, The Promise of America's Smaller Industrial Cities in a Low-Carbon World. And um, again, just to bring uh, you up to speed, if you didn't catch uh, part one, you can find that podcast at uh, thecityfm.org. and uh, hear the first part of that discussion. And today in part two, um, we're gonna hear more about the agricultural, uh, the regional economy, and uh, what uh, what the, the smaller industrial cities uh, could look like, again, if we see that political will um, to really make um, smaller industrial cities um, play an important role in that transition to a low carbon, uh, post carbon uh, future. Um, but just to give you some context, if you're unfamiliar with uh, the book, um, And this is coming uh, from the back cover, um, and this is published, uh, again, the book by MIT Press. America's once vibrant small to mid-sized cities, Syracuse, Worcester, Akron, Flint, Rockford, and others increasingly resemble urban wastelands. Gutted by deindustrialization, outsourcing, and middle-class flight, dispor- disproportionately devastated by metro freeway systems that laid waste to the urban fabric and displaced the working poor and struggling with pockets of poverty reminiscent of post-colonial squalor, small industrial cities as a class have become invisible to a public distracted by the Wall Street versus Main Street matchup. These cities would seem to be part of America's past, not its future. And yet, journalist and historian Catherine Tumber argues in this provocative book, America's gritty gritty rust belt cities could play a central role in a greener, low-carbon, relocalized future. As we wean ourselves from fossil fuels and realize the environmental costs of suburban sprawl, we will see that small cities offer many assets for sustainable living not shared by their big city or small town counterparts. Population density and the capacity for more fertile nearby farmland available for local agriculture, windmills and solar farms and manufacturing infrastructure and workforce skill that can be repurposed for the production of renewable energy technology. Tumber, who has spent much of her life in Rust Belt cities, traveled to to 25 cities in the Northeast and the Midwest, from Buffalo to Peoria to Detroit to Rochester, interviewing planners, city officials, and activists, and weaving their stories into this exploration of small-scale urbanism. Smaller cities can be... critical part of a sustainable future and a productive green economy. Small, gritty, and green will help us develop the moral and political imagination we need to realize this. And Catherine Tumber, uh, currently visiting scholar at uh, the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University, uh, she's a journalist and historian, and in the past, uh, she's been a research affiliate at the MIT Department of Urban Studies and Planning and Community Innovators Lab, um, past managing editor and art director at the Boston Review, as well as the managing editor of the news and features um, at the Boston Phoenix and um, we're going to get right into that. Um, but first, we're going to go to Bruce Springsteen um, with Streets of Philadelphia um, and uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, certainly uh, coming from uh, the Fordest heartland um, of industrial America, uh, New Jersey, um, and bringing that uh, popular um, uh, working class music uh, and speaking and uh, singing about those uh, industrial landscapes. So, um, we're gonna first hear this track and then dive into part two of my discussion uh, with Catherine Tumber.
0: Things. Just as black and whispering as a rain the streets of Philadelphia.
2: Doesn't you know very re- doesn't very regularly enter into these conversations in spite of all the local food movement activism we've seen in recent years is um, is what's going to become of agriculture mm-hmm. with um, global warming you know um, we're really seeing some of the limits of um, industrial agriculture the the drought in the Midwest here in the United States. Um, is devastating this year's corn crops and since everybody's planting corn everybody's devastated economically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if if they were planting, you know, if they were practicing uh, you know, more diversity, crop diversity, it wouldn't be quite as devastating. Anyway, in any case, there are all kinds of reasons to to think about the role of agriculture in, in um
3: what in the way you, that we you know, that
2: we organize, the way that we that we structure the relationships between different cities.
1: I, ideally, and, for you, what oh, go ahead. what what does agriculture look like in smaller industrial cities in in the U.S. Um, and to you know uh, and also this can be you know in Canadian cities as well. We have you know in Ontario. Um, the southern Ontario very much like um, parts of of the Midwest and in the U.S. Um, smaller smaller cities. What role um, does agriculture play? And you also touch on the idea of urban agriculture. And can you mm-hmm. explain how you how you see these two relating? One could be more, you know, in the smaller city or or actually outside, you know, residential mm-hmm. development somewhat and then the other is is right in in the city as we're seeing in places like Detroit which you talk about in your book
2: well um, first of all you know as it happens these cities are located on some of the most fertile farmland on earth Um, they're also um, um, for historical reasons in part settled on on waterways so they have access to two really important natural resources um and not to mention climate you know reasonable climate but um so um they they are well situated for developing um you know a a a a, a how can i put this um um, vibrant um, agricultural economy. In my book, I talk about I have two chapters actually devoted to agriculture because I think that with regard to these cities, they're both really important, but they ha- they should be kept somewhat separate. One of them is devoted to a discussion of um, of urban agriculture. Um, unlike cities that are that are that are densely settled, relatively densely settled um and have high uh, real estate values these cities have been completely disinvested in and you know you go to places like Youngstown or Flint Michigan and um you know whole blocks are urban prairie <laughs> i mean these these used to be thriving neighborhoods i remember um and so urban agriculture is a, um, is a very, and they're also very impoverished. So ab- ur- urban agriculture, um, is a, is a good way of sort of stabilizing these neighborhoods, putting them to use. There's a debate about whether that use should be permanent or, or transitional. Um, and they they also provide food and they can, they also can, um, help people who are, who are struggling, um to put you know, you know, to make to, to make a little extra money on the side. So to talk about urban agriculture in places like Detroit or Youngstown or Flint is a very different sort of thing than to talk about it in places like uh, New York City.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> or I would think Vancouver. That's not to say that people you know, I mean that's not to say that urban agriculture takes all kinds of forms. I mean it can be a sprig of basil on your balcony. Or it can be a, a you know a whole um, sophisticated urban farm, um,
1: can you talk about what um, what we are seeing to some extent in cities like Detroit and Flint, Michigan, or other uh, smaller cities and we'll we won't uh, go into talking about urban agriculture in New York, um, but um, you talk about it quite extensively in, in your book about yes. uh, Detroit. And can you also talk about issues of race and class and how um, urban agriculture in in these Rust Belt cities um, can perhaps address that?
2: Yes. Um, Well, I found that, um, you know, and here we can get back for just a moment to David Owen's argument, which is that the main thing we can rely on is density. And it's a very poor use of land to pursue urban agriculture. And that's true to some extent in new york again it's a very different sort of thing in a place like flint or you know detroit i traveled to these places and um, um... they really do have uh... these projects have a way of um, doing a number of things um, one of them is to um... to stabilize the neighborhoods and to get people involved with group projects that are um that are fun and beneficial to the neighborhood. I mean, there's some vandalism, but you know, remarkably little in most of these projects. Um, because we're talking about cities that have whole, you know, blocks um, empty mm-hmm. that um, that could invite all kinds of, you know, illicit activity, and, <laughs> and think, they do.
1: And I think for, <laughs> they have
2: a history of doing so.
3: well yes, so, it, you know,
2: yeah. it. it it can sort of stabilize the the, the the culture of the neighborhood and involve the community in in having an, an investment in the future of the neighborhood. Um, it also helps people develop useful skills, you know, um, learning how to grow food and to cook it and um, to um, is, is a useful skill it's one that you know in our consumer culture we, we've kind of forgotten about um, I don't really have it myself but I admire it <laughs> um, and then there's uh, you know there's also the um, um, the fact that uh, you know for you can actually make some money doing this um, you know there's not much investment in the land in fact in most in, in all these cases, the land is, is given over to this activity, you know, tax-free. Um, and, um, you know, with some of the technologies that have been developed and, and um, methods that have been de- developed, I'm thinking of people like um, Will Allen, who developed a form of vermiculture um, and um, um, aquaponics uh, at his, his urban farm in Milwaukee uh he's been he's been taking his model um and helping people to develop and develop it in cities around the country um, and it it it's actually you know revenue producing <laughs> people can can um can make some money doing this so it's not i I don't think it's a long-term economic driver for the city but it certainly does help whole neighborhoods of people who have been disadvantaged to say the least. Um, and, um, it, it can help them to get a leg up
1: in Detroit. And again,
2: you, to care about their neighborhoods. You,
1: know. you mentioned, um, John, um, Hans, if I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly, Hans, right. his, his vision of, um, of agriculture, urban agriculture in Detroit. Can you touch on this? Cause I think it's an interesting, uh, little uh, little story.
2: Uh, you know, I'm not sure where that stands now. I was last out there in 2009. I'm about to go back, so it's too bad we're not talking like in a month. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to look into this, but um, John Hans is a, a final, I, I believe a financial services um, tycoon, to use an old-fashioned word, and he decided that what he wanted to do was to buy up some of these pro- these properties in Detroit um, which are going for for next to nothing um, right. there's just such a you know um, an excessive amount of, of vacant property and um, turn turn the properties into um, a full-scale like you know several hundred acre commercial farm in the middle of the city um, there's been a lot of uh, you know um, there's a lot of a lot of the data about whether or not this would be a good thing. Um, he was quoted as saying in some newspaper that, you know, no one should be able to get a deal like this. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, this is like buying land. I forgot exactly what he said. It's in my book. But this is like, you know, buying land in, in downtown Manhattan for in the, dirt cheap yeah. in the 1940s. You know, yeah, it's, <laughs> in, he yeah. saw it clearly as an investment. And, you know, some of the... Um, African American um urban farmers I talked with had real trouble with the idea that you know not only was this rich white guy going to come in and take over this this um urban farming model that they had pioneered but it was their city it was, It's was predominantly black and they had um been abandoned um by the, the white flight in the in the 50s and 60s and the sort of structured um, disinvestment in the city that favored white people in the fifties and sixties. And here was something they were doing to make, you know, to to make things work in the city, and it was being taken over Mm -hmm. by rich white guys. So, uh, but it also faced a lot of other um, practical difficulties. Um, He wanted to, he wanted wanted the, the lots to be contiguous It would be like one big area of Detroit that would be a big farm. And it would also be a tourist site um, in what's been called agritourism. He'd have, um, you know, some vertical farming where you have farming that goes up on platforms to make the most use of the space. It was going to be very innovative, forward-looking one might even say utopian, and not necessarily in a good way. <laughs> Do you, um, yeah. But it was very hard to put together um, contiguous properties because the way that, the way that, that people um, leave these neighborhoods, if they don't leave en masse very often. In fact, usually, you'll, you'll, you'll go into a neighborhood and you'll see a whole block of grass or maybe and a grass or maybe a couple of burned out buildings that haven't been torn down yet. And then you'll have a, a, a house that's actually still functioning and people are still living in it. You can't make people leave. And especially after the experience of urban renewal, um, you know, African-American urban communities are keep that very much in mind as, as well they should. <laughs> um, they're, they're, Neighborhoods were decimated as a result of that. So they're very suspicious of these grand schemes and whether anyone has their interests at heart.
1: Do you have concerns that that this type of um, large-scale corporate, um, in many ways it's sort of a greenwashing of of what the original, in many ways the original intent of urban agriculture um, was? Do you have concerns that this could be um, part of... The the neoliberal packaging of of what um, you know the green utopian uh, sustainable uh, commodified city s- looks like, and and this sort of vision um, is is a snapshot into what that potential future could be.
2: That's an interesting question. I I, I don't know. This this might be an anomalous situation because Detroit is so. Dramatically depopulated. Um, there are very few cities that that have this much vacant property that are in this this kind of fiscal straits. Um, so I'm not sure if it could really be a a, a model for much of anything. I,
1: m- I mentioned this, and this is a part of a, a broader question of, of uh-huh. ecological gentrification. But um, there's a there's a, a PhD student in the geography department at UBC that um, I've interviewed on um, on the city on the on this uh, program, and uh, he's done research uh, with others around uh, the use of um, uh, the ecological or sustainability um, to just for for developers in their use of marketing and very much. Um, in Vancouver the use of urban agriculture and sustainability is is really those are the buzzwords right now and so it's mm-hmm. it's used oh, sure. in a way to make you know developments look more sexy or to even avoid um, paying property taxes because you can essentially speculate create an urban garden that's not necessarily public it's still privately owned um, but then when you're ready to develop it you Clear out that community garden, and you build your oh, you build your tower. So I guess I haven't
2: heard about that particular ploy. <laughs>
1: yeah, there's a, I guess a larger question of um, taking a city like Detroit, where you have such uh, deep rooted um, racial injustices, um, class divisions in in Detroit and other cities. Um, is is urban agriculture seen as sort of you know the the white um, white young kids coming from Chicago or leaving their middle-class backgrounds to go and sort of go to the frontier land?
2: I think that you see some of that, um, for example, in Detroit. Um, um, and I know that, that um, there has been some tension among the, you know, the, not the white wealthy developer who we just talked about hands, but between some of the more um, serious um, innovators um, people who are serious about developing urban agriculture there's there's been some tension between um, um, African American um, developers of this and and the the white um, people who are coming in and and they, they often have grant money um, to develop properties, but they seem you know since my book was written, they seem to have come together in a in a pretty a relatively um, um, harmonious way they they they're all involved it, since since I was there they have developed a a food council for the city of detroit and um they all sit on it, so they have a format for working out these grievances um and as far as I know, they've they've come to some some ways of understanding, you know, each other and and, and the ways in which their interests coincide. Um, I was just going to say something else. Um, oh. You can edit that out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course.
2: <laughs> I hope. Um,
1: while you're thinking, I'm I'm gonna ask you, is it okay if we extend for another half hour? Uh is that sure. Is that okay? <laughs>
2: sure. Um can I can I I want to correct my thoughts here though on this because this is kind of important. Yeah. Um, it's escaped me. I'm sorry, Andrew. That's okay. It it has to do with what's happening now. Um um sh- I can't remember
1: the racial tensions divisions in Detroit. Yeah, it's it's it's
2: escaping me, damn it. Um oh, about kids. That's mm. right. People yeah, yeah, uh the, the people who are uh, There's also this whole art scene. Detroit has gotten a lot of attention um, as a place where, you know, young artists are coming into the city and, um, you know, developing, um, you know, living in all these, these, you know, dirt-cheap properties and creating a real sort of local art scene. Um, And what's interesting is that I found out is that, you know, uh, they're, they're mainly from suburban Detroit. They're not coming in from hmm. Chicago or New York, you know. It's been called um, Rust Belt chic,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, but most of the people who are who are doing this are actually people from the Detroit area who don't want to live in the Detroit suburbs anymore, and that that kind of puts a very different kind of slant on it because it's it represents um, a sensibility, if if only a tiny slice of it. Of the next generation and what they, how they, how they relate to their city and how they want to be involved in it again. I, I have uh, uh, some, uh, you know, some hope for that. Um, that instead of going, you know, from suburban Detroit to New York City, they're they're staying in the area and wanting to rebuild their city again.
1: Mm-hmm. On this, you had t- asked yeah.
2: earlier though about. Um, the other form of agriculture rural agriculture
1: mm-hmm. yeah how does how does um, that fit into smaller industrial cities and and their future and I guess also within this, how do we wrestle away uh, control from large agribusiness
2: that's or, the ten million dollar yeah. question <laughs> um, i I think um you know, uh, I, I do think that as these cities learn how to develop ways of diversifying economically, um, agriculture uh, will play a larger, should play a larger role. And in the process, agriculture itself should be changed to account for the actual food needs of the, of the local population rather than of the commodity markets, corn and soybeans these um as I said earlier the these cities tend to sit amid some of the most fertile farmland on earth, and yet they're sprawling into that farmland at a you know alarming rate, especially relative to their size and if they could develop um if they could develop a way and there are there are a number of ways of doing this, and I, I can talk about that. Um, of halting that sprawl and actually seeing it as an important natural resource going into you know the, the land as an important natural resource going into this era of climate change we're facing, um, it could really um, change the character of these cities. I mean, it's an important part of their of what they have to work with. Of you know, it's, it's an important resource. So many of, of um, you know, and and um, I'm sorry, Andrew. I'm starting to get tired. Okay, <laughs> it's okay. Um, one of the ways to do this is to is to develop the marketing and infrastructure that. Um, that was stripped out a long time ago, and in some cases, didn't even exist in parts of the Midwest. A big part of any kind of food system is having a market stru- structure to get food to market, and the way that our agricultural system, or you know, the, the market structure is set up in this country, is it's set up for commodity crop delivery and for um... You know, long-distance transport of um, fruits and vegetables. So even if, if a farmer wants to um, diversify, and there's every every evidence that you can actually that small farms can be economically viable if they don't have to compete with the rising land values caused by commodity monoculture. Um, they don't really have a marketing system to getting their crops to to the local markets. And by local, I mean, you know, a few hundred miles. I don't mean, you know, right down the street, (laughs) Uh Um, although it could include that, too. So one of the things that that, um, federal um, agriculture policy could do is to fund that infrastructure not necessarily subsidize individual crops or individual farmers which is what the u.s. government does now but to subsidize the building of that infrastructure so that say you know so so that for example the apple industry in upstate new york could more easily get its products to the downstate you know market eight million people in new york city more easily than than they do now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I don't really talk about this much in my book. This is more related to my to my um, the work I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. I'm looking more deeply into each of these things now, particularly um, the question of um, you know the the problems of sprawl faced by these cities and the ways in which they can be disproportionately um, advantaged if they could rein in sprawl and put that. That land to better use, better economic use.
1: Catherine, I want, I know uh, we're, uh, we've been talking for a while, but if I could ask you to um, paint us a picture of what the small um, industrial city looks like and um, do your best to connect um, some of the things we've talked about with transportation infrastructure, land use planning. Um, schools, which you touch on the edu- public education in these cities, um, and um, additionally um, urban ag- or agriculture, rather, um, and uh, what the retail landscape also looks like in some of these smaller American industrial cities. Just so people can get a sense of what what it would actually take to make um, to further this this vision.
2: Wow. That's
1: quite
2: ambitious.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, and I guess I also want to just add that in your book, and um, uh, you talk about the power of I'm, I'm forgetting um, who who mentioned this or who was quoted in your book, but um, you have a quote from somebody saying that you know U.S. cities have. Um, a great deal of um, local power in a way that um, we look at Canadian municipalities and they don't have this type of power mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but it's only the, that political will um, so what i guess what does it take to get these things in place? Um, do we do we overplay the autonomy that we and and the agency that local uh, governments have, or is there enough to work with um, to again, create this network um, of smaller cities that in, in ways can connect to the larger um, metropolis to bring, you know, food to market, etc.
2: You know, it's, it's a very, very um, difficult question. Um, <laughs> and I think that, you know, um, I know this is broad and vague, but I think part of the trouble is, Part of the challenge is changing the, the way that changing the way we think about cities culturally. We have developed a a consensus, it seems, um, and it's been reinforced by the the facts on the ground that you know, large cities have been doing better economically than smaller industrial cities. Um, that being in a big city is desirable, it's preferable, it's where everybody wants to be, it's where all the venture capitalists want to be, it's where big things happen and, you know, I don't like this word, but, you know, smart, <laughs> smart people want to hang out, that all the talented people go to, to big cities. And I think that it's just not true. It, it just hasn't been by observation. Some of the most um, thoughtful um you know, uh, talented um, people I know come from and have lived and have stayed in these smaller cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so part part of it's a matter of changing the culture and the way that we think about, about cities. Um, I also think that, um, and this is sort of like a broad way of addressing all those
3: mm-hmm.
2: specific things you mentioned, up. you mentioned, um, we're just beginning to really question the neoliberal consensus, so, you know, supposedly that has that has prevailed, at least in policy circles, um, since the '80s. That that free markets really aren't that free. Mm-hmm. There are um, people who stand to win. A great deal, and there are people who stand to lose a great deal, and it is gutting our middle class, um, and it is leading to a world of um, environmental degradation and um, um, social inequity. And I think that um, there's some room to hope that that people are beginning to that you know average people are are paying attention to the economy. The economy has sort of like in most people's lives functioned, you know, only in in so far as as it's it's as it's affected, you know, people's individual lives, you know, their jobs and things like that. Um and we've placed too much trust in our in our leaders and in our in our, our political and and um you know, um banking leaders. Um of course there are exceptions to that, but you know I mean, I've just kind of like assumed that the system is going to carry on because, because it's the free market and we trust these people to take care of these things. Well, it's clear that that's not happening. Um, and I can point to Occupy Wall Street as evidence of that. Um, perhaps the Tea Party, you know, much less so, because I don't think that they really do have a very well developed economic understanding. Of, anything.
1: But it's still a but, you know a populist <laughs> movement, right? But,
2: but as people understand the nature of the economy and how the how the economy works, I'm hoping that they'll be more receptive to, to learning more about how local economies work and how local economies relate to the global economy and the national economy. And from put those things together to, to take hold of the, the power that they really do have, beginning on the local level, the local and state level, and then, um, you know, across larger scales. Right. And one way that they can do that is to, um, you know, question the, the ways in which we, um, we, we consume. The buy local movement, I think, is um, is is really important. Um, these these big big box stores, um, they 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 not only undersell the local competition and and um, extract wealth from the community and distribute it to to uh, you know corporate headquarters, <laughs> but um, they also are able to build and to continue to sprawl thanks to taxpayers' subsidi- subsidies, taxpayer-paid subsidies, and this is something that um, most people don't seem to understand. They're they they're seeing this redundant building, you know, one uh, Best Buy, which was you know perfectly functional, being replaced by another Best Buy just a mile up the strip, for example. That movement is being paid for in part by taxpayers' money. So I think that if people start to understand that it's in their best interests, in their individual pocketbooks, and in, in terms of fiscal responsibility, um, because all of these places are in dire fiscal straits, it could lead to you know um, o- opening the curtain on to the onto other ways that. economy works and in which they are, you know, subsidizing other people's, uh, you know, other people's projects that they don't benefit from.
1: Do you believe that that smaller cities need to be part of the solution to realizing um, the idea of a a steady state economy or a, a zero growth economy? where we're not after chasing 3% compound growth um, every year and we're we're realizing the natural limits placed upon us and the fact that we are consuming far beyond what what we can actually sustain ourselves uh, in the long term on and all of these issues of resource depletion and biodiversity loss and climate change. For you, do you think the smaller... Do you think smaller cities um, are part of are part of that solution in helping to realize that that alternative reality or that future? I
2: th- I think that you put it well. I, th- I think they're part of the solution. I don't I don't think that um, we should replace Mumford's model of the small city in the ecological region. Um, we should pl- replace the metropolis with the small city. There's room for both. Um, but I think that, you know, what I'm really interested in, I guess, is another way of putting it, is that I'm really interested in what the productive green economy is going to look like. You know, so much of the way we talk about, um, you know, environmental activism is in, in terms of um, consumption.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, and in terms of recycling and in terms of food choices. Um, and all of the and, and car choices, <laughs> um, you know, there's much to mock in the latte-drinking Prius driver. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm interested in, in what the productive green economy could look like. And I think that these cities could anchor that. They have the waterways, they have the, the, um, the fertile land, and they have land in general that will be needed to harvest renewable energies, uh, wind and solar and so on. Um, they have the skill. They have, a, you know, a productively oriented work culture that's still intact. Um,
1: when you talk about the productive green and their
2: cities, you know, I should just add yeah. this one more really important thing that yeah. I I don't think I say enough about in my book. They are urban markets in and of themselves. You know, part of the trouble with with um, collapsing small cities into small towns and seeing them as more or less the same, is that small cities actually are significant urban markets. <laughs> I mean, a city of two of 300,000 is a lot of people. There's a lot that you can... Um, there are a lot of people to consume what is made. So they're, they're, they are... Um, they're well positioned to ground local economies as, as, as we go into an era where we'll have to do more relocalizing, I think, than we are accustomed to thinking of. That doesn't necessarily mean no growth, but shaping growth and taking more responsibility for the, for how we want to grow rather than letting it go on willy-nilly, you know, um, powered by, you know,
1: the so-called free market well and that that is in contrast with Edward Glazer and the Richard Florida uh triumphalism of of neoliberal globalization and urbanism and I want to ask you do you, are you hopeful that this relocalization um and and the movement to um realize these natural limits um, and to wrestle power away from Wall Street and from um, you know agribusinesses and, and banks and on and on and on, is it possible within um, a, a market system? Is it always it, will it inevitably be co-opted into part of a, a, a new phase of of capitalist growth? I think it's it's uh,
2: really very possible. Um, you know, I I think that, uh, that the United States, um, and to a lesser degree, Canada, but I think it's true of Canada, too, I think, um, you know, is is accustomed to being, um, the most successful economy in in the world since the post-war period. And we now have real rivals. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of China. I'm looking at you, China, um but also um, they have um, an emerging, skyrocketing um, local consumer market that they're now um, addressing, they're producing for. That was the case in the United States after the war. So one of the things that we have to really try to think very carefully about is the role of the consumer economy in our future. You know, after uh, the September 11 attacks, here George W. Bush told everyone that they should just chill and go shopping, and <laughs> and there was, um, you know, something to that because our economy is is uh, is heavily consumer based, um, and and um, you know, I think that we have to do some very serious thinking together about what it is that we're going to produce together and what it is that we're going to produce for our own internal markets and what we're going to produce for the world that the world needs too for, you know for export
1: um, I want to ask you um, just to wrap up um, but with the f- one of the final questions I want to ask is do you think in looking at uh a new vision for um for smaller industrial cities, um which you write about in your book Small, Gritty and Green, that things like local currencies and uh you know credit unions and cooperatives and um sustainable but um non-market institutions or you know, community land trusts, um have a have a role to play in in realizing uh, what you talk about and what you argue.
2: Oh, definitely. Um, you know, we could debate each one of those um, at a time. Um, you know, the you you asked about um, the role of capitalism. I think that um, we will always have some. You know, a, a, a substantial role. To, the markets will always have a substantial role to play. In the American system, unless we go through some sort of, like, you know, um, Marxist-Leninist revolution, which I, I don't anticipate. Do you? I don't know. Am I not seeing this properly? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, the United States has always, in its history, balanced the claims of the market and private property against the claims of the public good, and has taken different form over time. Um, when you have, you know, uh, huge uh, corporate conglomerates, multinational corporate conglomerates that are, you know, who, who have a net worth that's equal to the GDP of, you know, countries, entire countries, you you have to have some sort of um, government structure that, that, that expresses the political will of, the people in, 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 maintaining some sort of regulatory control, although what those, those structures can and can't do. I don't think that that's a wild-eyed radical thing to say. Um, it seems very practical, like almost like common sense to me. And that's the kind of system that we have had on and off since the Revolutionary War, the War for Independence, um... And it was thrown out of balance um, in the late 19th century, to some extent, during the Gilded Age. And it's been out of balance again in the past 30 years. We really have to go through a, a serious correction and a very serious rethinking about um, the nature of the free market and um, private property. I'm not questioning either one. either Both, both must, you know, b- both are part of the American system but they, have, they can be shaped in different ways um, that are less destructive to um, democracy.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so I know you mentioned it briefly, but your your current research project or projects are looking more at the relationship between the smaller cities and the, the larger, larger cities. Is that right?
2: I'm looking more at the manufacturing economy. Okay. That's one project. And then I'm also looking at um, sprawl. I'm doing more with sprawl, and I'm okay. really looking at the way subsidies and tax incentives work that that underwrite sprawl.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I know what I, I wanted to say before um, when you asked me if I had anything else to say. Mm-hmm. Um, there's never really been a free market in this country. We've always subsidized one, uh, you know, you know, some different forms of economic activity. We have underwritten um, the canals and the railroads and the distribution of land, and um, so you know, the the uh, the idea of the free market is really kind of a myth, and I think that we have to rethink that and come up with a more realistic and and historically consistent way of thinking about markets
1: okay um well again thank you so much for your time catherine
2: thank you for having me andrew
1: and that was catherine tumber author of small gritty and green the promise of america's smaller industrial cities in a low carbon world, and that was part two of my conversation with Catherine Tumber. You can find uh, this program as a podcast, as well as the first part of our discussion, as an additional podcast, um, among many other past podcasts, all at thecityfm.org. Again, that's www.thecityfm. Dot org, And you can find the program on Facebook uh, by searching the City Critical Urban Discussions and follow the program on Twitter with the handle thecity__fm. And this wraps up the show uh, for this week. Thank you, as always, uh, so much for tuning in. And um, we're going to go out with a track from Purity Ring, um, and um, we'll be back uh, certainly next week with uh, more uh, critical um, uh, discussions. And um, as always... Um, all of that, um, please go check out thecityfm.org and uh, you won't be disappointed. Uh, Many great uh, different urban stories and podcasts um, and uh, additional content available there. So we'll be back next week. Thanks so much for tuning in.
3: With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really
1: going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next.
2: The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes
1: our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM.
2: This is the
1: viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Despite the fact that 8 in 10 Canadians are against warrantless and costly online spying, the government remains stubborn, set to cement this scheme into law. With their huge PR budget, they've unleashed a reckless and irresponsible campaign that suggests warrantless collection of our private data is on par with a phone book. We can't let them trick Canadians. Go to www.openmedia.ca now to find out what you can do to get involved and stop this smoke and mirrors campaign the government has started.